The following podcast is provided by truthforsaints.com, a resource for cults, religions, and church history. Welcome, everybody, to episode two of the Truth for Saints broadcast. My name is Andrew Hamilton, and uh, I am the founder of truthforsaints.com, which is a source for all things pertaining to the Christian faith and world religions, cults, denominations, matters of truth, worldviews, basically a resource for you as a Christian to not only gain a greater understanding of the world around you, and we hope that you uh, choose to join us each week as we go through a number of different topics. Last week was just basically an introduction of who uh, Dr. Ken Hochstetter and myself, who we are, what our background is, where we're coming from, so that you understand perhaps our position theologically. Uh, We are Bible-believing Christians, Bible-following Christians, Yeah, it was just sort of a get-to-know-you, that first uh, podcast, so in case you missed that and you've come across this through search and you wanted to find out uh, what we're going to cover this week, which is uh, we're going to give you an overview of the Bible, the basically its organization, makeup, that sort of thing. We're going to kind of give you an overview of the position of the Bible, why Christians adhere to the Bible as the supreme authority for the church and for us as individuals why the Word of God is sufficient, fully sufficient, to make the man of God complete in all matters of doctrine, uh, reproof, and correction, Second Timothy uh, 3.16 and 17, I believe it is. The idea, of course, is that uh, we would want to communicate Christian truth. At the same time, we'd like to encourage Christians in the faith and perhaps help younger Christians move along in the faith and uh, perhaps attain to uh, greater maturity in the faith. That's the idea, is to equip the saints the best we can uh, with the Word of God and the truth of God. So with me is Dr. Ken Hochstetter, who is a, a professor of philosophy, a believing professor of philosophy. Ken, any uh, thoughts uh, from your side on why, why it might be important to uh, listen a little bit today about the Word of God? Uh, yes, absolutely. I um, agree entirely with what you said. The Lord has provided in His Word everything the Christian needs, everything the person needs to expand it, to become saved, to get into a right relationship with God, and then how to live this life in every aspect, from marriage to parenting to relationships to how to think, uh, how to think about God. And so it's very important that we have a good understanding of Scripture, have confidence in Scripture because that's our source. Mm -hmm. Yes, there are other sources of knowledge. Um, Obviously, we gain a lot of knowledge about the world through sensory experience, through reasoning. But for as Christians, we need to keep everything in check by the Word of God. And so it's important to have a good handle on that. Hmm. I agree. Yeah. Now, I will add that there are a number of uh, false teachers, false prophets out there, people like uh, those adherents of the New Apostolic Reformation, Bill Johnson, kind of the uh, Rick Joyners, Todd Bentleys, and I mean, that list goes on and on. Of course, it all comes from C. Peter Wagner and and his uh, sort of uh, ilk, if I can say that. Uh, I don't know if that's a nice way of saying it, but uh, they would tell us that basically to follow Scripture— in the way that we do, is more of a religious spirit, kind of uh, we, we are trapped in religion, and really what we need is we need prophets to tell us and to help us hear from God, and uh, they have the word. John MacArthur, I think, says, says something that's kind of funny. He says, 
of course, they say that because they're at the top of the Ponzi scheme, and uh, you know, it, it, all <laughs> all arrows of authority point back to them. So, of course, they're going to say you need us. But uh, in reality, we we need each other. We do need the church. I wouldn't consider those men to be a part of it. I would say we need each other as Bible believers. We need each other, but ultimately, our authority is the Word of God, and the authority for the church on the whole is the Word of God. I'm not uh, also one of the sort of renegade, we don't need leadership, we don't need structure, we don't need... I, I don't I don't agree with that either. I'm not going to that extreme. I would say we need elders. We need those people that are gifted to be pastors and, and leaders. Elders, leaders, pastors. We see deacons serving in the church, but the Lord did give us a good, I thought, a very good overview on how, on how we are to conduct ourselves in the church. We'll talk about that. There's a number of podcasts that we're going to do. We'll talk about ecclesiology that falls under you know what what does the bible have to say about how church uh happens how do, what does it look like what is it how do we conduct ourselves and then uh, as i mentioned last week uh we talked about the invisible church and the visible church and i think one of the reformers that talked a lot about this was uh, john calvin i think he had a lot to say about the visible church and the invisible church i i do agree there there you know you what you see with your eyes is not necessarily the church. I think the church is something that is comprised of believers that only God Almighty knows who are his and who aren't his. Uh, and there are many people that kind of uh, walk around saying they're Christians and really aren't. Anyhow, so thank you for being here. Let's go ahead and jump into it. Let's talk about the Bible and what this is. Basically, this is um, Ken is putting together a book. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that book and what the title is, and then we'll, we'll launch into it. Uh, what I'm going to talk about will come from a chapter that I'm going to be throwing in there. I, either it's a chapter or it's, uh, I'm sorry, you, you were saying it was, we might also make it a footnote. Is that what you were saying? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Oh, it's in a very important chapter. Uh, the book is entitled Thinking About Christianity. Each chapter starts off with thinking about. And we basically go through some difficult topics that Christians struggle to think about. So I contribute six chapters, the first of which is thinking about God, using the Bible as the ultimate source, uh, but then using some sound thinking to develop that. Another one is thinking about the Trinity, another thinking about the incarnation, thinking about the atonement. And then I go off into a little bit of philosophical issues. So I have one on thinking about evil. How should the Christian think about evil? And thinking about Christian exclusivism, it's becoming more popular in the world today, even among Christians, to be pluralist. That is thinking that many or maybe even all of the various religions are just man's way of reaching out to God. And so, so long as you do so sincerely within that religion, you're going to be okay. But that's absolutely false. And we defend, the Bible defends, Jesus and Paul yeah. taught Christian exclusivism. Mm. And that is, it's through Jesus alone. Yeah. And the Bible alone is God's word. And so that's another chapter. And then Andrew mentioned his chapter is thinking about the Bible, which is the topic of today's podcast. Yeah, excellent. Thank you. So we'll we'll talk a little bit about this. We'll refer back to this. Now, a lot of what Ken had mentioned, a lot of that has to do with salvation is justification, and uh, how is it that we're made righteous? Is it by our actions? Is it by our deeds? Is it by our works? No, but it's by the grace of God. But a lot of that has to do with the atonement. And uh, we'll talk about the essentials of the Christian faith, which is which atonement is part of that. Let's go ahead and jump into the Bible this week, and we're going to talk about, first of all, the organization of the Bible. If you're fairly new to Christianity, or, or even if you have been a Christian, but you'd like to kind of understand why the Bible is the way it is, 
We'll talk about that right now. Now, basically, the Bible itself is divided into two separate books you'll find. We call one an Old Testament, and we call one a New Testament. Now, the word for testament basically uh, is better translated covenant. The word testament is basically, I'm not going to go into a lot of this because I'm not a linguist. I'm not a uh, not proficient in Latin, certainly not in Greek or Hebrew, but we have taken on a Latin translation of the word covenant, but either way, both are correct. Essentially, the covenant, uh, Jesus says, behold, I I give you a new covenant, in, and ba- basically that's a covenant that can't be broken. Uh, and so that's why we have two covenants. We have the old covenant and the new covenant. And essentially, I, I my, my favorite summary of the relation or the interrelation of Old Testament and New Testament comes from a Chuck Missler, a kind of a Calvary Chapel teacher. He says that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So essentially, the Old Testament is all pointing to Jesus. That's It's all pointing to the fact that we are broken, we are lost, and we are separated from Almighty God. Uh, I'm reminded of a passage in Genesis, which kind of can slip by us if we read through it very quickly, but... There's a little phrase, I probably should have the Bible verse up in front of me, I don't, but uh, there's a phrase uh, where it says, it was at that point that men began to call uh, on the name of the Lord. Do you, you remember this, Ken? I do, um, but like you, I can't remember the exact yeah, it's, it's, it's chapter and verse. Early on, it was pre-Noah, basically, but uh, it was at that time that men began to call on the name of the Lord. But you, you begin to see, it started out with God fellowshipping with Adam in the garden where he could speak to God at any given time and he had an ongoing, regular, unbroken relationship. But as a result of the fall in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we we see a break in that relationship that gets, that only gets worse and worse to a place where there's no longer fellowship and that men are actually crying out or calling on the name of, of God. And then that only happens over the course of time. You you see that the Lord then, from long before it happened, he had a, the plan of salvation lined up for us, knowing full well that mankind would blow it, as we did. And so what happens is we see in that first section of the Old Covenant, we see one section of books that's referred to as the Pentateuch. It's five books written by Moses from Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the five, but it was all given to him by the Lord. He wrote as he was told to write. And uh, as the New Testament says, that all prophets spoke as uh, the Spirit of God, as the Lord gave them utterance. And so we have the first section of the Old Testament, which is the Pentateuch, whereby we see the creation uh, of man, the fall of man, And then we begin to see areas of judgment. We see in Sodom and Gomorrah, we see judgment fall. But we see that the Lord pulls out those who are his. He pulled Lot and his family out of Sodom prior to the judgment. And then we see that the Lord, uh, it, the, the wording is such that the Lord repented that he ever made man because from the time of his youth, his, his thoughts were always evil. It was growing widespread in these days. And so in, that, in the midst of that, Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Uh, and that's where we begin to see the understanding of grace come in. And it's an unmerited favor. It's the gift. Noah didn't do anything to deserve it. He basically found grace in the eyes of God. And God chose Noah and his family. And we'll talk a little bit more about the scientific evidence for the flood, which, of course, if you look at, a, at the scientific record 
honestly, you would find that it's consistent with the idea that there was a worldwide cataclysmic disaster uh, that resulted in a number of the formations that we have and that we see. So anyhow, we'll go into that a little bit later. So we go into, um, in that section, we also have the Lord beginning with a man named Abraham. Now, some would, might believe that Abraham is the starting point for the Jewish faith, but he wasn't uh, necessarily the founder, if you will. Uh, if you want to point to a founder, so to speak, of the structure and formation of, of the Jewish faith, it would probably be more Moses than, than Abraham, but, but some do like to point to either one. Uh, but you, you have the founding of a people, the Hebrews, and we begin to see their journey into Egypt, then out of Egypt, and then the delivery of the law. Now, with the law, we discover that we, we see in the law how perfect God is, how pure God is, and how high his standard is for how just how glorious and great he is. That standard is delivered in the law. And mankind is told, you must attain to this standard. And what happened is mankind could not attain to that standard, did not attain to that standard. The Apostle Paul says that, the, that it was given in such a way to show us how fallen we were then and how fallen we are today as creation. So this takes us from the delivery of the law. Then we go into a whole section of books known as the historical books. And so in the historical books, you have the book of Joshua, where the Israelites come into their land, the promised land, and they're allotted their places, they're given their places, they uh, form a nation there. And even though they're given the promised land, we see that they fail. They fail to observe what the Lord said, do not adhere to any of the ways of of, of those peoples and to, to the land where I send you. And basically, it was in the land of Canaan. And you would see that they could not obey his commandments and suffered accordingly. And so you have a series of books and judges where you see them oppressed by these nations around them that they should have wiped out, but did not. They left them. They were then made to suffer through the book of Judges, and the Lord would still continually raise up a person to deliver them. And he would work through that person, and some of them are quite famous. We know about Samson and Delilah. Samson's one of my favorite judges, I will say, but uh, unfortunately, he, he, he was a mess with regards to uh, living a godly life. He just uh, didn't seem to have much interest at all, but really from a superhero point of view that he just had superhero strength. But anyhow, so we're, we're taken through this period of Judges, and then towards the end of Judges, we have a man named Samuel, a prophet named Samuel, who was raised up as the final judge. And to this judge, the people complain, we want a king like the people around us. So then the Lord acquiesces, and then you have King Saul, who failed miserably among the Israelites, but uh, he was replaced by King David, which just about anybody and everybody knows about just because Richard Gere played King David <laughs> back in the 80s. So you have uh, King David and you have this period whereby uh, you go through First and Second Kings and then you kind of follow from the point of David. His, his reign was the highlight of the nation of Israel, but still a sinful man himself, which is evidence that even... The best of the best are still fallen and, and desperately in need of a Savior. But but David was a prophetic writer, and he looked for his Savior, and he counted on, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That was David that wrote that, and Jesus himself, when he came, said, if the Messiah is the son of David, why does David refer to him as Lord as his Lord? 
as this period uh, progresses, we go through the historical period of the failure of the lineage of kings from King David. Now, the Lord promised that the Messiah would come through the lineage of David. So we have that promise throughout that in Moses, the Lord said to Moses, I will raise up a prophet like you among the people, and you must listen to him. That was also a prophecy of Jesus in that time. And so throughout all of Scripture, the Lord is telling them, I'm going to send you someone that's going to fix things. I'm going to send you someone that's going to make it right. You better listen to him. And at one point in the prophets, the Lord says that I will put my words in his mouth and he will speak only the words that I give to him. Now, flash forward to the New Testament. And Jesus says, I speak only the words that the Father gives me. And so you see that's a fulfillment of what the Lord said. I'm sending you someone that will fix things, that will make things right, but you have to listen to him. And Jesus tells us what it is that we needed to do is repent and believe and receive. So we go through these historical books, but then kind of as a transition, we have what's known as the poetic books. So now the poetic books begin with a very curious book called Job. And now Job, some believe because of it, they believe that this book perhaps predates the uh, Pentateuch because of the, the style of writing, because of how Job speaks of creatures that perhaps were wiped out by the flood. Uh, there's a number of reasons that people point to for the antiquity of Job. Wherever you, you land on the age of that book, nevertheless, Job is considered one of the poetic books. And then we go into the book of Psalms, written primarily by David, but also by a number of the leaders of or, or musicians, if you will. Asaph is one. Uh, and then you go into the book of Proverbs that's primarily written by Solomon, who is the son of David and who is said to be the wisest man to have ever lived up to that point and the wisest man that will ever live on the face of the earth, which obviously you would think, what about Jesus? But Jesus wasn't just a man. He wasn't isn't in the same category because Jesus was God incarnate, both God, fully God and fully man. So he's a, a different category. But as far as men go, Solomon was the wisest of the wise. And so Primarily, most of Proverbs are written by him. And then also you have Song of Solomon written by Solomon and then also Ecclesiastes written by Solomon. That's the poetic books. And then you go into major prophets and and then minor prophets. Again, not called major or minor because they're more important or the minor prophets are less important, but primarily it's because of the length or the, the size of the, the books or the, the size of the writing. They're actually organized in such a way that uh, one half of them, of the major prophets, is pre-exiled Israel and then post-exile Israel, if you want to look at it that way. And the same with the minor prophets. They're organized in a way that a section of them pertain to pre-exile and post-exile Israel. And that comprises the bulk of the Old Testament. That's the structure. So it's basically 39 books that make up the whole of the what we would call the first covenant, the old covenant. But essentially in those books, the book of Isaiah is probably one of the best books that tells us about how the Lord is going to send his servant. And he, he says uh, in the book of Isaiah, it says that, behold, the virgin shall conceive and shall give birth, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son there you go. is given, the government shall be on his shoulders, he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, that's 
Isaiah 9, 6. What, what was that you just read? What version was that? NIV, because that was the first one that pulled up. So uh, NAS, yeah. NAS says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government shall rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. Wow. So the NIV just hacks that verse. Uh, let me go back to the NIV on that. Um, That's interesting. We will talk about translations, and the NIV is definitely one I recommend avoiding. But. No, the NIV is actually pretty good on this one. NIV says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Oh, all right. So the NIV does a decent job of that. Okay, well, that's good. All right. So I, I don't take back what I say about the NIV because overall it's not a good translation. But right, but on that particular verse, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. That's good. Good job, NIV people. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we'll talk more about, about translations and, and which ones are kind of trustworthy and, and that sort of thing. So, But uh, the interesting thing about Isaiah is that it breaks down in a very similar fashion to the Bible itself. Because the first 39 chapters of Isaiah talk about the fallenness and the need of broken mankind, whereas the final 27 chapters pertain to God's remedy for that brokenness, God's remedy, God's salvation for that brokenness. That's what I find interesting about the book of Isaiah. And that's exactly what the, the structure is of the, of the Bible, in that the first 39 books talk about our fallenness, our separation, our lostness. We might love the God of our mind. We might think we love God, the God of our mind, or a God that we think is God, but really the God of the Bible we hate because God himself says that we all hate him. We're enemies. In fact, he says that friendship with the world is enmity towards him, and we're all friends of the world essentially before we get saved. That's what 39 books of the Bible teach us. The Apostle Paul said that the law was his schoolmaster. It was the one that led him to a place of recognizing his loss, his need. And then the final 27 books of the Bible explain the remedy that Jesus was sent to to save us from that sin sickness from, as I said, as I mentioned last week. Anyhow, we've talked a bit about the structure of the Old Testament. And then the odd thing is, because this structure is given and in the law, there is a prescription for a high priest, a prescription for priests uh, under that high priest. There's a prescription for Levites who uh, do a lot of the work, but they're not necessarily priests. Uh, per se, and then you you have a hierarchy and an infrastructure that the Lord uh, gives to Moses to give to the people for how to conduct things. Well, the Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi. Well, let me back up and say this. So the book of Malachi, I think that was written... 445 BC, roughly? Exactly. Let, let's just call it mid-5th mid century, yeah. And that was it. That was the close of the Old Testament canon. And as far as the Jewish people are concerned, that's where they believe the scriptures closed for them, with Malachi telling them that I will send a messenger that will make the make the way straight. And so uh, a very ominous warning given at the end of Malachi that if you don't receive him, it's really going to go hard for you, speaking to the Jews. Now you go forward about 450 years from there, and suddenly we're, we have this whole new sort of structure in place. We have offices and titles like Sanhedrin and Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and all of these things which don't seem to have any mention in the Old Testament, but yet suddenly they all sort of show up there in the New Testament. And so that can sometimes lead to a bit of confusion as to what happened 
what happened to the old way of doing things and how did it change so drastically in 450 years? And quite honestly, it had to do with what historians say is uh, sort of the separation. It was Alexander the Great, who was one of the kings prophesied by Daniel and that prophesied in Daniel, but it was a, a prophecy given in a dream to Nebuchadnezzar, one of the kingdoms of the giant that uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw in a dream. Alexander the Great, just basically all of that uh, area of the known world, conquered it. And then he died very early, and it split into the Seleucids, you had the Ptolemies, and you, you had a tug of war, one to the north and one to the south, and the Jewish people caught in the middle, who were vassals, so to speak, to both, to either one, and they kind of played either side. So you had a Maccabean revolt that took place during this 450 years, where during the Maccabean period, you had the uprising of the Jewish people who won their independence. So it was its own sovereign nation for a little while. But during this time, they slowly but surely came under the thumb of a new power rising up, who eventually would conquer both the Seleucids and the, and the Ptolemies and, and basically the whole entire area known as the, the, the Roman world. But what you had is you had a group of Jewish people who would be considered purists or conservatives. That would be the Pharisees. And then you had those who were more of what we would call liberals, who threw out a lot of the authority of the Word of God and known to them at that time, in the Sadducees. So you had the Pharisees who took the Word of God, or tried to anyways, and, and took the Word of God and uh, at face value and believed in things like the resurrection and the coming Messiah and these types of things, looked for the coming of the Messiah. And then you had this group of people who were known as the Sadducees who were more liberal and they were far more, the Pharisees were more nationalists. They wanted, they wanted Judea to be its own nation. The Sadducees wanted to make peace with surrounding nations, and I think they rejected everything in Scripture outside of the Pentateuch. So you have these these formations of groups and factions that took place in this 450 years of going back and forth between these subsections of the Greek Empire. And by the time we take up writing and the Lord starts speaking again and and giving his word again, the world has changed. It looks different. And this is where a lot of this comes from. And you have a, a king, King Herod, who had nothing to do with the lineage of David at all. These kings were kings that were put in place by uh, ruling authorities, sometimes by either a Seleucid or a Ptolemy influence. They would put their own sort of puppet king in place. And then Rome started doing the same thing. They started putting their puppet king in the place of, of, of the real king. And so these kings often knew that the Jewish people hated them. And so they did anything and everything they could to please them. And Herod, one of the things he did is he built this magnificent temple, uh, rebuilt the temple. So that you technically have the Temple of Solomon built in the time of Solomon that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in the invasion of the Babylonian army. And then you had the Maccabees, uh, that Maccabean period, where they built a very small temple, a very tiny version of the temple, which was grievous to people that this little tiny temple, it was once so great, but now it's so small. And then Herod comes along and to curry favor with these Jewish people that kind of hated him because they knew he was a puppet, took that temple and made it magnificent looking. And so by the time Jesus and his disciples came into Jerusalem, here you have Herod's temple, which was magnificent and large. That temple then would be destroyed by the Romans in the uprising of 70 AD, or well, I think it was slightly before then. I think that was 70 AD is when it all ended. But yeah, it was right around, I think it was 70 AD. 
It was completely destroyed, as Jesus predicted. It, not one stone would be left upon another. And that came to pass in 70 AD. There's a whole story about why that happened. They, it, basically, the gold melted and because of the heat of the burning temple, and it dripped down into the stones. And so the Romans saw that. They started ripping up the stones to get at that gold, and they were fulfilling prophecy whether they knew it or not. So that's the intertestamental period that leads to the New Testament period. So the New Testament, the New Covenant, is 27 books. Again, the first five books are historical, but ultimately you have the four Gospels, which are written to four different audiences. And I've heard different scholars talk about the audiences of, of who they're written to. The Gospel of Matthew is written to the Jewish people. Now, Matthew, of course, being a tax collector, but a Jewish man, a Jewish tax collector, but uh, he wrote to the Jewish people, and he was an accountant for the most part. I mean, he, he knew how to handle money. It was just what he did. You'll see a, a very precise accounting in some of those parables and things that, that Jesus gives. But you'll also see from Matthew, then you'll see Mark. Now, there there's some debate as to which one was first. Conservative scholars believe that Matthew's gospel was the first to appear. Liberal scholars believe Mark's was the first to appear because they think that Mark's appeared and the other the others all derived their gospels from his but mark john mark was a close companion of the apostle paul and he wrote a version that many people believe because he was a close companion of the apostle peter as well that the gospel of mark is technically the gospel of peter in, in so many words because mark derived most of what happened there from Peter. Others believe that uh, John Mark was one that was in the garden and he was the young man that uh, ran away naked. People think, well, that might have been John Mark that did that because that doesn't appear anywhere else. The Gospel of Mark then is primarily written to Romans. Uh, and then you come to Luke. Luke was not an eyewitness, but Luke went, was a doctor and meticulously interviewed probably more than anybody else, from what I understand. Yes. He went around and uh, and checked with everyone. And so his position was to write to the Greeks. And then you have the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John was written much later, probably around 85 to 90 AD is when uh, most scholars think his was written. And his, his Gospel was written uh, to the world uh, altogether. So you have in Matthew, he points out that, that Jesus is Messiah. He wanted the, the Jews to get that he was Messiah. And Mark wanted to point out Jesus uh, to the Romans as king. Uh, Luke wanted to point out to the Greeks that Jesus was man. And there's a good reason for that. The, the Greeks were able to believe that Jesus was a spirit, but they couldn't believe that he was a man because popular in Greek thought at that time was that fleshly things, earthly things were for the most part uh, tainted and evil. And there's no way that a perfect and pure God could be uh, a man in such a, in such a way that it was. And by the way, just to interject, even uh, the philosopher Plato uh, had a similar thought. He believed that what we are are immaterial souls trapped in a body. And true knowledge comes by using our minds to get at what he called the forms, which we get at truly when we're disembodied. And when we're embodied, we're, we're sort of trapped in this earthly realm. Um, and so what doing philosophy does is help you to escape uh, the trappings of the body and sensory experience and the like. Uh, yeah, which which probably I would think is why Gnosticism was spread spread like wildfire. We'll we'll talk about a few of the heresies of the early heresies when we talk about when we get into historical theology and we talk about 
what what Christians had to contend with theologically uh, throughout the years, uh, in addition to what they had to, to deal with as, as far as persecution goes and that sort of thing. And there was a lot of enemies of the gospel, and they came in all various shapes and sizes. Uh, but uh, the Lord always raised up heroes at one point or another to contend with a lot of these things. But John's gospel is usually the gospel that's best to start with. There's a reason for this. John, interestingly enough, goes all the way back before creation to the origin of who this Jesus is. And he reveals him as God Almighty, a God in the flesh. And it's this that's important for us to receive because it's in John's gospel that Jesus says that unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. Now, I know the translations say I am he. You'll see that the translators into English added the word he. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. But really what Jesus said is unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. But then also we see that only God can receive worship, but we see that Jesus is worshiped and he doesn't rebuke those that worship him. And if he were a good man, he would have rebuked them because they were they were worshiping a good man and sharing the glory of Almighty God with a, a good man. And But he didn't because he was God incarnate. But So that's what you have in the, in the Gospel of John. Then we go into the, the Acts of the Apostles, the fifth book of the historical section of the New Testament or New Covenant, as we said earlier. Then basically the next section would be the epistles of Paul. And so the epistles of Paul can be broken down even further. Some people put the book of Hebrews into the general epistles because there isn't necessarily a signature from Paul on that. But even the very early fathers, I think Eusebius credits it to the apostle Paul. I can't remember, Tertullian, I think, also credits Hebrews to the apostle Paul. But then only recently it started drifting into sort of being considered a general epistle. But that's the group of epistles that follow the epistles of Paul. Uh, which would be James, First and Second Peter. You have First, Second, and Third John, Book of Jude. But you have the the general epistles at that point. Then from there, there's only one book of prophecy. Whereas in the Old Testament, we would have seventeen books of uh, seventeen prophetic books. In the New Testament, there's only one prophetic book, and that's the Book of Revelation. And in this Book of Revelation, we'll talk about. Again, that's another one of our podcasts down the line. We'll talk about that when we get into eschatology. Those that came along early on in the faith and kind of suddenly t- didn't understand Revelation and so therefore took it as all allegory. And this all, uh, obviously this all began with Origen, a man named Origen, who was one of the Antonician fathers, if you will. He's considered an Antonician father, but uh, others might consider Origen a, an apostate because in the latter part of his faith, I think he became a universalist. I think he, I think eventually he, yeah, he started adopting some really bizarre things. Universalist basically is just somebody that believes that all are saved, uh, no matter what. You're basically uh, Jesus died for all people, and all people are going to heaven in one way, shape, or form. Uh, you can probably speak better to this, Ken, if you can, if you if you want to jump in anytime. But Origen, I uh, believe, also had started to embrace the doctrine that uh, even Satan and, and the demons could be saved. So it got a little bizarre for him in the latter. So some believe him to be an apostate, but uh, for the most part, one of the fathers that uh, that wrote prior to the Nicene Council. Anyhow, so he's the one that introduced the idea of allegorizing scripture. And so Revelation, unfortunately, fell victim to being allegorized even though the Lord is quite explicit in there. And, you know, it does make it clear, though, that it, it belongs to the time 
around which the events take place. Uh, along with the Reformation, a lot of things had to be cleaned up. One of the things was soteriology, that we are not saved by faith plus works, but rather by uh, we're saved by grace through faith. We also cleaned up the idea that there's this purgatory that exists where you can burn off some extra sins and you can pay money to get people out of this purgatory. We cleaned that up, got rid of that, got rid of the idea that uh, we're supposed to wear long jewel-encrusted pointy hats and that makes us more holy and that sort of thing. We got rid of a lot of the garbage. And one of those things that took a little while to get rid of was this idea that uh, the final book of the Bible was just to be allegorized. So it took a little while for that to be reformed. But uh, the idea that the Lord does speak symbolically in that book this final book of the of the New Testament, uh, it, by no means is is it to be taken uh, uh, as allegory. I think it's a very dangerous thing to take passages of the Bible as allegory, wouldn't you say, Ken? Yeah, it it's going to depend on the passage, but I would agree with you on everything you've said. Yes. So that's it. That's basically the overall structure of the uh, of the Bible. This has been perhaps a little longer that we've kind of gone through it. That's the structure. That's the overview. Of the Bible now, what what we'll talk about perhaps next week, we'll try to tie this in to people say, okay, well, the truth of God's word, okay, that truth is for you, that's your truth. But uh, what about the Quran? That's also true, is it not? Even though what it says is completely contradictory to Scripture, is that not truth? What about the Bhagavad Gita, the Vedas of of Hinduism? Are they not also truth? And what about the writings of Lao Tzu and the Chinese traditional writings, uh, Confucius writings? Are these not also uh, valid and true, even though they're contradictory to Scripture? And, and, and many of the assertions are contradictory to Scripture. Are these not also true? So maybe that's just your truth, the Bible, and wh- where wh- why should it have uh, any any sort of authority, that sort of thing? Well, we'd like to talk about truth before we go into the truths of Scripture and the authority of Scripture and and perhaps talk a bit about the reliability of Scripture. This week, I basically uh, yammered on for the bulk of the time. Well, 99% of the time. This is fine. <laughs> yeah. But next week, we'll turn this over to Dr. Ken Hochstetter. Again, if you want to find out, I'm going to put a lot of what I've written in this chapter about the Bible for Ken's book. Uh, I'm going to put this up on the truthforsaints.com site, but I'll put it under authoritative writings. I think it's scriptural writings. So if you go to the Comparing World Religions tab, I'll put what what we've talked about uh, in the Bible today and and the whole of this chapter will go in one way, shape, or form on, on the Truth for Saints website. Next week, we will address the types or kinds of truth. You'll see that in the sidebar. If you go to types or kinds of truth, that's basically where we're going to have the bulk of what we talk about next week. You'll see uh, Ken's article on uh, his contribution there to what truth is. And then I'll, I'll also run a few different definitions given to us by the UN and by others who like to define what truth is. And then I'll, I'll see what Ken has to say about those. Any Anything you'd like to say in closing about uh, what we've talked about this week, Ken? I'm in full agreement with everything you've said, especially about not treating Revelation as allegory. So at this point, I have nothing to add and look forward to next week's discussion. All right, so we'll see you next week. Thanks for stopping by. In subsequent weeks, we'll talk a bit more about the authority or why we can trust God's word. That is why Christians believe that it it should be the authority, why it is the authority, the ultimate authority for the believer and the ultimate source of truth. So please do uh, click the subscribe button so that you know when we have the new episode up. And we look forward to seeing you again right here on the Truth for Saints podcast. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast provided by truthforsaints.com.